Hello, this is Saul Luckman. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Conversations on Saul Luckman Uncensored, sponsored by snoozetoawaken.com, resources for lucidity. For more information about my work, including a lot of cutting-edge free content, check out crowrising.com. I'm also on Telegram, where I'm sharing daily truth bombs at t.me slash soulluckman. And I'm absolutely crushing it on Substack at saulluckman.substack.com. If you appreciate what I'm doing here and interviewing some of the greatest minds and hearts in the whole truth and nothing but community, please take a second to give this video and channel some love energy exchange. Comment, like, subscribe, and by all means, consider buying me a cup of coffee that I'll be sure to savor with a toast in your honor. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Brad Marshall, creator of the Croissant Diet. Yes, you heard that correctly. Stay tuned because this new understanding of fats and accompanying approach to diet could literally transform your body and life. Brad's work radically recontextualizes current dietary fads, including keto, paleo, and carnivore diets, within a framework of established nutritional concepts inspired by French culinary traditions. Brad's groundbreaking ROS theory of obesity, elaborated on his blog at fireinabottle.net, posits that ROS, or reactive oxygen species generation, in fat cell mitochondria explains how a Chinese peasant diet, low in fat with most of its calories from starch, a French diet of butter, wine, and flour, and a contemporary keto regime all can lead to leanness, whereas mixing flour and polyunsaturated fats is literally a recipe for obesity. The inspiration behind this groundbreaking theory stems from the blog Hyperlipid, which I will link to. Brad puts this hypothesis to the test with the croissant diet, and the results are pretty mind-blowing. Brad is also founder of Firebrand Meats, dedicated to providing pork and poultry low in linoleic acid, the N6 polyunsaturated fat, or PUFA, that has contributed to the global obesity pandemic. Brad has a degree in genetics from Cornell, as well as a certificate from the French Culinary Institute. For the last 15 years, he has raised rotationally grazed pastured pork on his farm in upstate New York while running a butcher shop local food restaurant, and USDA-inspected meat processing facility. Talk about a renaissance man. Thanks so much for joining me today, Brad. How the, how the low poofa are you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm great. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. Oh, it's great to have you here. You know, I've been following your work since sometime in the fall of last year. And I have to say, when I saw, uh, you know, the, the, the name Quas on diet, I, I wasn't sure whether to take it seriously. And of course, I started reading your material and I realized you were, you were, you know, dead, dead serious. And that was really cool. And I learned a lot doing that. And I started listening to some of your podcasts and whatnot. Uh, and I thought, you know, if I could ever just get you on the show, uh, I think a lot of people would be absolutely fascinated by this material. I, I, I do energy healing and I've written a couple books and I talk some about diet and cravings and that sort of thing. But your stuff really, really resonated with you know my um my experience in the world because i lived in france for a long time and right i had exactly the same question how do these people who don't 
exercise for Jack, who, who eat God knows what, anything really, and a lot of it, frankly, how right. in the world do they maintain these svelte physiques that you see walking around Paris? Right, exactly, right? And that is... And that's the exact question that I started with. Um, and, and the same thing is true historically in America, you know, um, um, that that the diet was very high in in flour and sugar and butter and and pork and beef. You know, it was a very the traditional diet was it was a very rich diet, cream, um, whole milk, you know, and um, and yet if you look at, and according to data from the USDA, people ate a tremendous number of calories. You know, it's not just that the diet was rich, but they were like, you know, uh, right. Preventing. It's not like they were dieting. Right. They just, they just ate thing. Right. Right. They just ate and, and they were lean. Um, and that changed, you know, really only in the last probably 50 years or so. And so, Right. And so the question is why? What happened? Right. That's that's the great mystery. <laughs> well, I, what I would like to do is just briefly share my my experience of doing a version of this diet for, well, since really the beginning of January, mostly on very little off. But I've, you know, I've, cut, I've kind of, uh, you know, eaten pizza here and there on that kind of thing, you know, sure. kind of, you know, halfway halfway measures. But, you know, what I've noticed in myself, and I was in pretty good shape to start with, like, you know, I was pretty thin, but what I had noticed over time is that it took a little more exercise to keep myself at that weight, right? And, right. Um, and so, and I, you know, and, and I was doing versions of just experimenting with things like paleo and keto and other things, just trying to, trying to kind of figure out, because I'm in my mid fifties now and I'm like, okay, something's going on here. And um, my partner, Lee and I, we started doing, uh, doing diet and you know it's i noticed that i uh pretty quickly that i could go longer without eating without thinking about it and i know you've talked about your experience with that which is was fascinating to me and then i also noticed that i had more strength and energy just yeah. overall i got I, I just got actually a little bit physically stronger i noticed that like i right. was well fed for the first time in a, a very long time and then over the course of, uh, you know, the last six months, eight months, I've actually noticed that the shape of my body has changed. And Lee has uh, experienced exactly the same thing. Our legs changed. They got thinner and more muscular. I saw my sister after I'd been doing this a while, and she, you know, we'd been, it had been quite a while since we'd seen each other. She looked at me. I had shorts on. and She said, oh, you have your young person legs back. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard of that kind of thing from people? I, I love, I mean, I've never heard that specific comment before, but I love it. That's great. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I also, you know, noticed um, that, that was, you know, that was the funny thing. When I initially did the croissant diet, um, I kind of, you know, I, I did lose weight on the scale, but it wasn't, you know, it was like 15 pounds or something, but I had a lot of weight to lose, but but more than that, it was like the shape of my body changed. Yeah, it was like less, you know, it was less fat in the abdomen. And, um, and that was and that was really the most dramatic thing for me, you know, was getting rid of that kind of belly fat. But, um, but it is kind of amazing. Um, <laughs> when, it, when it works like that, you know, you make that change, and you see the results, right? And you're like, wow, that's, 
that's crazy. Um, now, now let me ask you other other diets, right? You know, just kind of knowing the lay of the land, the current, the kind uh, current, I would say dietary fads in some cases, you know, I used that, that word in the introduction. So, you know, anyway, you were going to ask me a question. Well, I was going to ask, did you do any kind of um, supplementing with stearic acid or did you just switch to, to, to butter and, and that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, and I have some questions about, you know, some some aspects of that. But yeah, I've been getting the stearic acid from you for a while. And right. I, I also found this amazing, um, amazing uh, ghee from Dr. Tom Cowan. It's the, I forget the the, the uh, letters. It's like A2 something two or something like that. It's the, you know right. what I'm talking about? Yeah, A2 is the, um, so in, in, in dairy, there's a, with, with the Holstein cow, which is kind of the modern cow, uh, one of the genes that I had, it's called A1. And it's and the A1 is more um, uh, more allergic, more allergenic. Like people have a response to the A1. And a lot of people who can't tolerate the A1 milk proteins can tolerate the A2 version of the milk proteins, which is what was in the old like um, uh, Jersey cows, which was what, where most American farmers, at least, you know, were getting their milk up until the at least until the fifties or sixties and even farm families, you know, even now some of them keep Jersey cows, you know, just for the family, even though the commercial herd are Holsteins, uh, you know, Holsteins are, the, Holsteins are the black and white cows for people who don't know. And, and Jersey's are the old Brown cow, like in the saying, how now Brown cow. <laughs> how now Brown cow. That's right. So, you know, I, I, I happened on that and I was assuming because of the whole, ruminant animal thing that that wouldn't be a problem doing a slightly different kind of milk. I haven't seen that that made any negative difference in terms of how I was using the ghee. I would melt that and then I would dump a lot of the stearic acid in that and use that. Um, right. You know, in either as a butter substitute or along with butter. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, we, I also got your sterculia oil. Oh, nice. And I've used that. I wasn't sure if I was supposed to use that before meals, but that's typically how I've done it. Is that an okay way to do it? Uh, yeah, I'm sure that helps with digestion. I mean, I think it's pretty easily digested anyway, but I think that, um, right, before meals is probably the perfect time to use that just to maximize absorption. Um, and I've done, a, I've done a tiny bit too, Brad, of some of the wine fasting aspects, just because I thought it was hilarious. <laughs> and then, I mean, I, I like wine, so, uh, so that was sure. really cool. But you know, I, I wanted to share just a little, uh, the little thing that you wrote on your blog, and I'll put a link in our show notes. I just really want people to know kind of what we're talking about. It's like, what the heck are these people even going on about? And this is just this little section in one of your earlier articles, and it's called the ROS theory of, of obesity. And I thought we could maybe break that down. Right. In terms of, if you don't mind, I'm just going to read a few paragraphs just to give people just a really quick overview. Absolutely, do it. You're a good writer, by the way. So the, the <laughs> you. uh, I know you're well educated and all that. So the ROS theory says that energy balance is largely controlled by the interplay between ROS, which is reactive oxygen species produced yeah. in the mitochondria and hypothalamus and hormones like insulin and leptin. In this theory, saturated fat, both from the diet and produced in the body from carbohydrate, acts as a molecular switch that by creating ROS in the mitochondria toggles the metabolism between running on glucose and running on fat. Saturated fat provides metabolic flexibility, the ability to tap into fat stores when available. ROS generated from saturated fat metabolism, oxidation, 
is the signal that prevents cells from switching from fat metabolism to glucose metabolism. They do this by creating a short-term condition of physiological insulin resistance, which prevents cells from responding to insulin, and they're therefore switching over to glucose burning as long as the cells are still burning saturated fat. You read that correctly. I'm arguing that everything we think we know about obesity is exactly backwards. And that's, I would just add, that's, that's really, that's, that's the beautiful, beautiful moment, the aha moment. Instead of choosing unsaturated fats to avoid free radical formation, which leads to insulin resistance, we should be seeking out long chain saturated fats, which cause free radical formation, which leads to physiological insulin resistance. The ROS theory is the first theory of obesity I've seen that can explain the situation in China, France, and the U.S. In addition, it explains why ketogenic diets work and why low-fat diets, which seem to work well in China, often fail in America. So, so it's right. fascinating when you start breaking this down and looking at, you know, you're you're almost doing a kind of sociological study here, where you're looking at all of these different cultures and trying to find the common denominators about about uh, having to do with obesity or its its opposite. Right, right. And, and just to, to add to that point, you know, I think the, the diet that the diet that doesn't work is combining uh, starch and carbohydrates with vegetable oil, right, which is exactly what we do in America, you know, everything is soybean oil, everything is, you know, mayonnaise, salad dressings, they're all soybean oil, uh, everything in restaurant is cooked in soybean oil, um, everything that comes out of a fryer is cooked in soybean oil, right. And so, so mm -hmm. America eats a tremendous amount of, of soybean, vegetable oils in general, but soybean oil specifically, um, and that's never really been tried anywhere in the world before. Uh, well, now everyone's doing it, but we were the first country to ever eat that way. And the obesity epidemic started here. Um, and so right. that's right. And so that's a lot of the, okay, well, before we were eating, you know, flour and sugar and butter, and that was okay. But now we eat flour, sugar, and soybean oil, and it's not okay anymore. So that, yeah, right. So that's what happened. But nuts and nut flowers playing into that equation as well nuts. well you know i don't i if you if you're someone who struggles with your weight and with your waistline which i think these days is probably most of us um i don't love uh i don't love you know eating nuts uh full fat nuts or nut butters those kinds of things i think i think that fat is is pretty unsaturated and i think that um you know and this is where kind of the torpor theory comes in but um, you know, hibernating animals in the fall will eat acorns and acorns are full of, of unsaturated fats, uh, polyunsaturated fats and, mo and a lot of monounsaturated fats as well. And they do that, uh, specifically to, um, engage, uh, some physiological processes that allows them to store fat for winter and then lower their metabolic rate so they, they can hibernate. And, and in fact, if you take um, this is, this experiment has been done many times. Uh, you can take a, a squirrel that, that is, uh, you know, that it's a hibernating species of squirrel, which there are a bunch of in the U S and you put them in the lab and you feed one of them. Usually they feed them sunflower oil. And if you feed the other one, uh, most of the experiments have done, they use sheep, uh, suet. So this is from, you know, suet is the most saturated fat from most ruminant animals. And so they took, uh, land, you know, mutton suet or something from a, a, a sheep and they, they fed them that fat. And the, the squirrels who got the, um, the mutton fat or the, the suet, uh, 
they didn't gain as much weight going into winter and they actually failed to hibernate. They failed to lower their metabolic rate all the way down to where they could hibernate because that those unsaturated fats are the, are the trigger, the switch that get you into torpor and having a lower metabolic rate and a lower body temperature. And, you know, and there is an epidemic today in America of low body temperature, right? Um, there's a lot of people walking around with a body temperature of 96 and a half. And a hundred years ago, when they did the research, they were like, oh yeah, human body temperature is 98.6 or 150 years ago, however long that was. But today it's not, you know, Americans have a body temperature well below 98.6. Um, fascinating. That is fascinating. Yeah. And You're so saying that people are walking around like animals preparing to hibernate and they're, they're going into a state called torpor. Yeah. Yeah, I am. And I'm arguing that. And so, and so when we talk about torpor, there are 160 species of mammals who are known to go into torpor and they're spread all across the mammalian family tree. So the, the oldest species that can go into torpor is um, the, uh, the spiny anteater. They lay eggs like platypuses, like that is the oldest mammal in existence. And then even uh, the, the gray lemur, the dwarf lemur that lives in Madagascar is a, um, is a primate that can go into torpor uh that is known to hibernate and so and then there's a hundred and you know 160 species in between those two so the only way that can happen biologically is if you know the original mammal that we all evolved from already had the ability to 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 hibernate and to get into torpor this this lower metabolic state which makes a lot of sense because having a warm-blooded metabolism is very energetically costly and if you have to survive winter or some animals go into torpor in the dry season like in california and so anytime that you're facing kind of a food shortage if you can go into this torpor state it helps you conserve energy right and so it seems like this is uh something all mammals have the genes to like we have the the sort of innate ability to turn on this torpor if we know how right and and humans you know we we're obviously we're not a hibernating species but you know we're really really closely related to animals who are hibernating animals and so it you know we can still turn on we can still turn a lot of those switches right and i think that the vegetable oils do that um and and I also would like to touch on on um, the point about the ROS theory of obesity. I kind of glossed over that, but I want to explain a little bit about that. So, um, so due to the way that essentially we, you know, uh, we, we run our metabolism essentially in our mitochondria, they're like the powerhouse of the cell, as they say, and saturated, the mitochondria is set up in a way that saturated fat create more of these reactive oxygen species than uh, polyunsaturated fats do. And in fact, than mono, than all unsaturated fats do. And uh, so that is, those ROS, you know, people were very scared about them for a long time. But in fact, um, if you look at the way the mitochondria is set up, our whole metabolism is really underpinning them. And, and even since I wrote that article, I found out that um, the, uh, the enzymes involved in glucose metabolism also create reactive oxygen species. So pyruvate dehydrogenase is 
the main enzyme that allows us to burn glucose. Um, glucose is broken down into pyruvate and then uh, pyruvate goes through pyruvate dehydrogenase to enter the mitochondria and be part of what they call the Krebs cycle or the TCA cycle. And that's how we, and that's how we burn glucose for fuel. And that enzyme, while it's working, continually is cranking out reactive oxygen species. And Are so- Are you saying that, that oxidative stress is not the total boogeyman it's been made out to be? No, in fact, I think that that uh, oxidative stress is actually a function of uh, something called reductive stress, which in theory is supposed to be the opposite of oxidative stress, but it actually kind of drives oxidative stress when you look at um, when you look at how it all works. And that's <laughs> that's complicated. And a lot of the and it's funny because a lot of the mainstream literature is coming around to realize like mainstream science is slowly coming around to realizing that the reactive reductive stress is the real problem and reductive stress is like i say it's kind of the opposite of, of um oxidative stress but it also causes oxidative stress i was that's gonna a say reading your material it was pretty clear there's an interaction there Right, absolutely, and, and so because because what it what it comes down to is it's just it's just flow of electrons. So, you know, when we talk about calories, right, what we're really talking about is in our food and carbohydrates and fats, we have these energetic electrons, um, and those electrons want to want to flow back down to oxygen, um, <laughs> and that's why it's called oxidation. And when that happens. Um, you know, oxygen is called the the terminal electron acceptor. And, you know, our food is mostly made of carbon and hydrogen. And, you know, carbon and hydrogen share bonds between them. And the those are the electrons. They live between the carbon and the hydrogen. And that's what causes that bond. And basically, when we so that's how we eat our food, it's hydrocarbon. And when we when we exhale our food, it's water vapor h2o and co2 right we breathe out co2 and so what happens is the the carbon instead of being bound to hydrogen winds up bound to oxygen and the hydrogens instead of being bound to carbon end up being bound to oxygen so oxygen at the end of the day when it uh, replaces carbon and hydrogen bonds gives off it gives off a ton of energy um, we're actually doing the opposite thing that plants do in their um, in their chloroplast, right? Plants take energy from the sun and they take CO2 and H2O and they build it into carbohydrate and fat. And we, in our mitochondria, do the exact opposite thing. Anyway. So cycling down into torpor that we're, we're decreasing our energy output. Yes, yes, exactly. And, and you know, the, the, right, to jump into all of those mechanisms about how exactly that happens, obviously is is complicated right. we don't have to um, go, go there but i yeah i did want to touch on you know we're, we're, we're talking about you know all of this stuff i wanted to make sure you touched on s scd1 right right and so so scd1 is an enzyme that we have and what happens is when you eat um this can again be thought of through the lens of torpor you know um an animal that is getting ready for winter, right? You need to store fat. It's your biological imperative to store fat. And so what happens is 
when you eat a bunch of soybean oil, that's a trigger to your body. Oh, uh, winter's coming, right? The body thinks you're probably eating acorns or something that are produced in the fall that are producing these unsaturated fats. The body's thinking winter's coming. We've got to fatten up. And so in response to eating the vegetable oil, you start to produce more of this enzyme called SCD1. And SCD1 turns the saturated fats that you have stored in your body into unsaturated fats. And That's so it, it, it kind of compounds the problem, right? The, the problem started with our dietary fat was too unsaturated. Now you have these enzymes that are you know, turning your own stored body fats and making them also too unsaturated. Don't the and, ruminant animals do something similar in the opposite direction? Yeah, so ruminant animals, animals are, um, they have, well, bugs that live in their rumens, right? So they're actually fermenting the food and they're, so if they eat, um, sure, if they eat carbohydrates and fiber, they're fermenting it all. And they're actually, they're taking in, um, only the 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 things that are released by the um you know by the bugs that live in their rumen uh, the bacteria that live in their rumen and so the bacteria tend to give off things like um that succinate and they give off um <laughs> they give off uh pyruvate or not pyruvate uh butyrate these these kind of short chain saturated fats and these other things and so so the cows take those and they rebuild them into their own kind of body fats and so so they're really not so in in a ruminant you have this whole extra step that's kind of gating what what you take in in your diet right so if you give a cow vegetable oil the 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 bacteria break it down into something totally different and then the cows reabsorb that and they can turn it back into saturated fat because animals can make saturated fat and they can make monounsaturated fat but they can't make the polyunsaturated fat like you find in um and soybean oil. And so, yeah, so since the cows have this extra kind of processing step, they, they're like, I would say that a human, you kind of are what you eat. If you eat a lot of polyunsaturated fat, you'll store that polyunsaturated fat. That's not necessarily the case with ruminants because yeah, they, they break everything down first. This is why you could, you could have beef from an animal that's been eating, let's say, I don't know, you know, lots of uh, soybeans. <laughs> I don't know if they do that, but just for the sake of argument, and they right. be actually producing low, low PUFA uh, kind of croissant diet meat. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, that's that's right. And, and they're not they're not one hundred percent protected from it. It's like a cow. Um, you know, a, a cow that's fed a lot of soybean oil might have three to five percent polyunsaturated fat as opposed to a cow that that's never fed any polyunsaturated fat motor might only have one or two percent polyunsaturated fat but if, if you were to feed that same polyunsaturated fat to a pig it might end up with 30 percent polyunsaturated fat in its fat and so a lot of the chicken a lot of the pork and especially the chicken that we eat is surprisingly high in polyunsaturated fat because we're feeding you know, we're feeding the pigs and chickens, we're feeding them corn and we're feeding them soybeans. Um, and, and, right, and, right. It and it accumulates, right? And so now you have this, this trigger to kind of get you into torpor and to put you into fat storing mode. And, it's, and you're getting it not only from the obvious thing like soybean oil, but it's also coming in from chicken fat and pork fat. 
Um, and and right, so, so with, in addition to the nuts and seeds and their oils, you have to watch out for certain meats that you might be eating that would have taken that in. Right, exactly. And, and it's right. And it's hard and it's frustrating because obviously you're like, okay, well, what is, <laughs> what is there left to eat? But um, <laughs> actually there's a lot to eat when you figure it out. I mean, I want people to know that, that Brad's on a bit of a condensed schedule. And so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm peppering in with questions and kind of directing the conversation a little bit because I want to get to some things and I'm being selfish because I have some questions, but I sure. really want to encourage everybody to go to fireinabottle.net and just read the website, read the blog. I also want you to know that um, uh, that I've we've gotten some of Brad's products, and he also you're still doing the farming at this point in time, right? With the uh, the low poofa meats. Yes. Yep. I'm raising low poofa pork over over at firebrandmeats.com, uh, and that stuff ships everywhere in the U.S. Um, so it's really good. It's the, it's the only true, I think, low poofa source of of pork that that we are actually you know testing each batch and we know exactly our, our pigs the last test had about six percent polyunsaturated fat in them wow. and and the, and the commercial stuff that i sent as a comparison had about 17 percent polyunsaturated fat so that's you know it's a pretty big difference between what we're doing be like kryptonite for the for the croissant diet so while we're talking about poofas a little bit um say more about poofas in general i know we've kind of been dancing around that term but what is you know just what does it stand for you know what are we actually talking about Right. So PUFA is just P-U-F-A, and it stands for polyunsaturated fatty acid. And so these are the fats that, like I say, they're in most vegetable oils, soybean oil, sunflower oil, safflower oil, um, you know, canola oil to, to, a, to a great extent. And also, like I say, unfortunately, in, in chicken and even in pork. Um, and, and these are fats that have, they're very liquid at uh, they're very liquid fats. You know, if you put if you put uh, soybean oil in the refrigerator, it never gets it never becomes hard. It always stays a liquid, right? And that's why that's why northern plants have them. Plants from northern climates are full of polyunsaturated fat because they don't they don't get solid in the winter, and those plants have to grow in the cold, and so they don't want solid fats. Um, the same thing with salmon. Salmon grow in really cold water. And so they have a lot of polyunsaturated fats. And wow. so those fats have multiple double bonds. Um, saturated fats are, are like long, straight strands. And they pack together really tightly. And that's why they become solid. The polyunsaturated fats are this very kind of kinky shape. They're like C-shaped or Z-shaped. And so they don't pack together as tightly. And that's why they stay liquid. Um, and that's okay, except that. Um, you know, it does become this kind of signaling molecule to tell, right, to tell the animal, to tell the human, okay, well, you're in the north, winter's coming, <laughs> you know, you should be, you should be storing fat for winter, right? And that is the, that's, that's kind of the, the problem with them. Um, they also have a tendency to oxidize and when I, the, the, the bad kind of oxidation where they're actually the molecules are becoming damaged and they have a lot of, um, of there's a lot of what they call oxidase, oxidized uh, oxlams, oxidized linoleic acid metabolites. Linoleic acid is the most common polyunsaturated fat in our diet. That's what's in soybean oil. Um, and they can get oxidized and, and make these byproducts that um, participate in inflammation and participate in a lot of other kind of 
problematic areas of biology. Um, and so that's another reductive stress. Yes, I be, I absolutely believe that they lead to reductive stress. And and I just want to say reductive stress is a complicated sounding term. It really just means that you have too much energy in your mitochondria. Um, and that's typically in the form of NADH and something called acetyl-CoA. Um, those two things build up in the mitochondria as a result of eating too much vegetable oil. And to the mitochondria, when the mitochondria thinks hmm, there's too much energy in here, that's a trigger for the mitochondria to turn on uh, de novo lipogenesis, which means fat making. Mm -hmm. And so, so the, the mitochondria, when it's overloaded with NADH and acetyl-CoA, it will actually slow down your metabolic rate and it'll, you'll start making fat. Um, whereas if you can keep the mitochondria on the lean side without so much NADH and acetyl-CoA, it'll just keep happily uh, running metabolism and you'll have a higher metabolic rate and you'll kind of have a clean burning mitochondria. Um, and that's, and that's really what you want. <laughs> nice. Nice. Now it is, um, what can you say about palm oil and coconut oil in relation to this discussion? Uh, I'm not a fan of palm oil. Um, palm oil is relative. <laughs> palm oil is a weird thing. Um, I, I think a lot about palm oil and I, I don't have a concise answer other than to say that the composition of palm oil is very much matches what um, a human, a human's body fat would look like if they were doing a lot of de novo lipogenesis. Palm oil has quite a bit of monounsaturated fat. Mm. It has a, it has a, a fair amount of polyunsaturated fat as well. Um, even though it is high in one particular saturated fat, which is uh, palmitic acid, but it's very low in stearic acid and it's relatively high in linoleic acid. And so palm oil really matches what it would look like your, what your body fat would look like if you were doing a lot of this de novo lipogenesis. And so I think it's, the body sees it incoming as like, okay, cool. We're doing de novo lipogenesis. I guess we're storing fat for winter even though it is more saturated than some of those other fats so that's palm oil is kind of a weird one um coconut oil i like uh i like significantly better uh coconut oil is mostly saturated um it doesn't have much stearic acid and so that's you know i would like it more if it if it had more stearic acid content but there's a lot of good things about coconut oil and the truth is i haven't experimented with it enough to have a good idea and and some of the trials i see with it i really like and other ones i'm i'm less i'm less excited about it um so jury's still out on on coconut oil but it's sure. it's not a bad it's not a bad thing you know it's it, it, especially if it's not like your whole in small quantities i'm sure coconut oil is fine it's absolutely fine now, conversely, and I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in this uh, question. What about cacao and chocolate? Uh, cacao is great. Uh, cacao is one of the, the highest, most natural um, uh, sources of stearic acid. And, and, and the reason that I talk about stearic acid, um, I, should, I should tell people. Uh, so stearic acid is kind of a unique fat. It's the longest uh, saturated fat chain that we normally get in our diet it has 18 carbons and it's a saturated fat and it it seems to act like a 
almost like a fiber. It, it, it's very slowly absorbed in the intestine. It, it travels into the mitochondria very slowly. And so it, um, it's burned very slowly. And so I want to give the, think, uh, the listeners a Brad Marshall quote that I love. Steric acid is the fiber of fats. Yes, <laughs> that's right. And so be, because it's really slowing fat absorption down and it's slowing fat, um, you know, transfer into the mitochondria. And, and like I say, like I was saying when I said that the issue is when the mitochondria gets overloaded with energy, then it goes into that um, it goes, it starts doing de novo lipogenesis and, and polyunsaturated fats are the opposite of stearic acid. They are very preferentially transferred to the mitochondria to be oxidized. Um, you know, they move very quickly. They get in there and they, and they overload things. And stearic acid kind of pulls the reins back on that. And it's a way of, of really slowing down um, that flow. And I think it allows you know, it just kind of paces things and allows the mitochondria to stay ahead and burn cleanly. And so even though, you know, sure, you can, you can show in a short-term feeding trial that if you sit someone down and give, you know, one person, uh, you know, cocoa butter, which is very high in stearic acid and another person sunflower seed oil in the next, you know, four hours, they'll have a higher metabolic rate with a sunflower oil because the sunflower oil is shooting into the mitochondria and, and wanting to be burned. So in the very short term, you know, feeding trials, right. it looks, it looks pretty good. But I think in the long term, I think that's a, you know, it's kind of like, well, if, if, if you eat super processed starch, you get this big blood sugar push. And in the short term, your metabolic rate probably will be higher but but in the long term, you know, that's probably not what you want. You probably want starches that are absorbed more more slowly. And um, and stearic acid does that, uh, you know, for fat. Um, right. Yes. So on the subject of stearic acid, Brad, uh, you know, one of the things that I've uh, studied for a long time is detoxification, how to detoxify the body through various um, methods. And sure. I noticed that that the stearic acid actually can induce a level of detoxification. And I was wondering if you could speak to that, if you've ever seen that. And maybe and my question really, uh, in addition to that, is whether stearic acid is has surfactant qualities. Well, <sighs> almost dissolving residue and taking it out of the body to some degree. And this, this can include based on my limited research, you know, in terms of my tools, but I think I believe that I've seen evidence of heavy metals and other things coming out. Right. I mean, uh, that's possible. That's, it's certainly not my, that's certainly not my area of expertise. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to go I'm too not far. Saying it's a bad thing. It could be a good thing, right? I'm, it, this is not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a kind of FYI or, you know, uh, just. Oh, a, right. Sure. No, I mean, it's a, it's a very interesting observation and I don't, and like I say, that's not, that's not my, my area of focus. So I don't, I don't know that much about it. Um, I do know that, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> I actually, well, let, me I, I reel, let me reel that in because I mean, at a basic level, if we have a lot of fat and we begin to replace that fat, right. And the fat literally kind of, I mean, on some level kind of melts away. Right. And fat is right, known sure. for all kinds of toxins. 
So if you start right. melting the fat, you you might have a detox uh, from from whatever was in that fat. Right. Uh, in addition um, to that, I did wonder if it might even act as a kind of surfactant to uh, release uh, kind of uh, calcified areas or things like that. It just it just you know, Lee and I spoke about this a, a number of times because we felt like it was having a kind of surfactant effect. And I know that sounds kind of wishy-washy and not very scientific, but that's the best language we could come up with. Right, right. No, I mean, it's it's very interesting. And I, this is the first time that I've, I've thought about it or, and I don't, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not sure how we would, you know, I'm not quite sure how we would answer that question, but it's, uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing it up because now I will, I'm going to put it in my thought bank and, 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 yeah. and think on that a bit. <laughs> so you maybe I guess. I mean, I mean just be... even looking at literature on stearic acid and surfactants and looking at chem chemical composition and that kind of thing. I mean, who knows what that could spark in your thought process. Yeah. And there is, you know, stearic acid is used as a, um, as kind of an emulsifier in foods, I believe. Um, yes. Yes. That's what got us on this whole subject. Yeah, yeah. And so I know it is used for that in, in, in food manufacturing. Um yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm not I'm not sure uh is my answer, but I'm I it's an interesting uh yeah, it's an area of future research, I guess. So another question, is there such a thing as a lipostat? Well, so <laughs> uh yeah, so this is something I'm coming at you. Right, right. No, so this is um what Sal is referencing, uh, this is something that I've kind of uh, floated in a couple of places, this idea of a lipostat. And actually, um, that was what I was mentioning about the palm oil. Um, because what happens is when when someone, there, there's a really interesting study with, um, with pregnant women who become, you, you see this in all kinds of diabetes um what you see is that when when people are becoming obese and when they're becoming diabetic their levels of of stearic acid in their stored body fats really drop um and there, there was one study in in particular lately that i saw and it was with pregnant women who who got uh gestational diabetes and over the course of their pregnancies you know the level of stearic acid in their um in their uh in their plasma you know it just plunged it dropped by 30 or 40 percent you know it was a big it was a big big drop and so when i see that when i know how when you know how stearic acid behaves and when you see that okay in obesity in diabetes levels of stearic acid drop um levels of plasma you know circulating stearic acid drop is that is that a signal to the organism? Uh, it's like, okay, stearic acid is dropping. Uh, that means that we are in, you know, we're in a, we're in a torpid mode. We're in a fat storing mode. And what's triggering that is, and, and so to me, what that would look like is if when you do de novo lipogenesis, so now you're, you're eating, um, you're eating starch, you're eating, sugar you're eating alcohol and you're converting that into fat you're mostly making um palmitic acid which is a 16 carbon saturated fat and you're making oleic acid which is what's in olive oil and that's an 18 carbon monounsaturated fat but then that would presumably be kick-started by eating a by eating polyunsaturated fat linoleic acid in the first place and so 
to me, the, the sort of signature motif of an organism that is making fat is going to be, you're going to see a lot of palmitic acid, a lot of oleic acid, and a decent amount of linoleic acid that's coming in from the diet. And you're going to see very little stearic acid. And that is exactly the composition of palm oil. And that's why I don't like palm oil. And when you look at um, feeding studies, animal feeding studies, palm oil makes things very fat. And so, so people say palm oil is a saturated fat. It's somewhat true. It's more saturated than other vegetable oils, but it's not really that saturated at the end of the day. And, and it, it's the perfect composition to, to, to mimic um, an animal that's eating vegetable oil and doing a lot of de novo lipogenesis. And so, so that's my question is some of the effects that we're seeing with stearic acid, can the body kind of read the, the composition of the circulating fats and do the individual cells and tissues, are they making decisions from what, from what those, what they see with those fats and those decisions would Right. That, that lipostat would be very dynamic because what would, be, what would be happening is individual tissues would be taking in circulating fats out of the bloodstream and trying to burn them. And it's going to come down to those dynamics that I was talking about, which ones enter the mitochondria faster and then which ones are generating more ROS. And, and those two variables are kind of going to determine whether or not in any given cell, um, it's, you know, if the mitochondria are burning cleanly and if you're going to have a good metabolic rate and burn clean, or if you're going to be in reductive stress and kind of burn dirty and start to do de novo lipogenesis. Um, and so that, that really, that's my explanation of what I mean by the lipostat and I, uh, or the lipostat. And I'm, um, it's something that I think about a lot and I haven't really, I haven't really written that down anywhere. So this is, that's, that's, uh, just straight out of my head i haven't <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely think there's something to it you know and reading through your material and i feel like there's a lot there that's going to be unpacked over time that you're probably like downloading there's just something going on there i've got three more questions that, that hopefully we can get through pretty quickly because i know you're on a, a timer here but these are yeah and it's not you know it's not too bad we can we can go a little over what i thought uh the thing i thought was going to happen hasn't happened so we're here let's let's keep going if you want I just want everybody to know Brad's in his, his pickup truck. Is that right on your farm? Yeah, yeah that's right. Well, I'm on the pickup truck on the side of a road, uh, <laughs> but it's okay. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So um, I learned about, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, I'm sure, Puer T from you somewhere yes. on, on your blog. And so that's spelled P-U hyphen E-R-H. And I found this Numi organic chocolate Puer T that I mix with. So I make it. And then I I melt, you know, cacao in it, right? And then I yeah. add, and then I add a little bit of just cream, right? Right. And it is absolutely an amazing coffee replacement. And you can add, you could add stevia or some other uh, sweetener to it if you wanted to do that. Just absolutely fascinating. So I wanted people to know that's what I'm doing. Are you still down with Puer tea? And if so, could you uh, enlighten us in, um, in terms of what it's doing in, in relation to the uh, croissant diet? Yeah, and so the Puer tea was um, was something that I so so I had written about um, 
I had written a whole series of articles called SCD-1, um, the series of articles I wrote called the SCD-1 theory of obesity. Um, and, and again, uh, SCD-1 is that enzyme that, that actually unsaturates your body fat. So it's turning your stored stearic acid into oleic acid, and it's fighting you, and it's trying to keep you in torpor in that kind of fat storing mode. And, um, and so someone else uh, had found in the literature uh, this reference to this PUERT and saying that it, it uh, suppressed SCD-1 levels, levels of this enzyme. And, uh, and, and sure enough, and so I went and checked it out and sure enough, um, it's, you know, it's, it has pretty impressive results and it's like you say, it's delicious tea. Uh, people really like it and, and it's available, you know, you, it's easy enough to find. Um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of people have had good results with it. Um, I, I have, tr I've drunk it at times. I'm not, I'm not personally a tea drinker, so I, I I struggle to stick with it, but I think it's a good, I think it, I really think it is a good idea though. Well, I'm not making any recommendations, but I sometimes mix it. I, I put two tea bags in one of this new me organic tea. And I, uh, I put a dandelion, uh, like a, uh, a roasted dandelion tea with it. And something about that combination just feels really good in my body. Right. So Interesting. Been on that. So I lied. I've got one more question. And so that would be three from now. So what about chicken liver? and PUFAs. I know that, you know, you talked about how the white meat and chickens contains a little bit less uh, uh, of the of these PUFAs, uh, but what about the organ meats? Yeah, I mean, so, so most chicken, right, so here's the, um, here's where, you know, uh, people have to use their judgment. I mean, so chicken, like I say, can be a high source of PUFA, but most of the fat from the chicken is in the skin and, and is in the, the obvious kind of clinging fat, you know, after you take the skin off, there are, um, you know, bits of what are just fat and, and those, you know, the skin and the obvious fat on the chicken is very high in polyunsaturated fat. Um, the chicken liver, you know, as long as it's not chicken foie gras or something, uh, you know, it's pretty low. It's a pretty low fat food, right? Chicken livers are not high in fat in general. And so you're probably not going to overload yourself with PUFA by eating uh, some chicken livers. You, you know what I mean? Um, if it was uh, if they were fatty chicken livers, then I would say, well, maybe avoid those. But um, but most most chicken livers pretty lean. And so I think, you know, if people want to eat lean chicken breast or chicken livers or, or cuts like that. You know, I, I don't think there's a problem with it from a PUFA perspective, as long as that's not the only, you know, source of fat that you're getting kind of thing. Um, right, right. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't go crazy on them, but I, I think some chicken is fine as long as it's, as long as it's really lean cuts, you know? I wanted to interject here that uh, really this diet is quite expansive. There's a handful of areas that you need to finesse, I, I would say, but really compared to many other diets, this diet allows you to eat very freely if you just get some things right and not always in restaurants necessarily, but certainly if you're cooking a lot at home and, and that sort of thing, boy, you can really uh, add some things in. You probably left out a long time ago if you've been on the so-called health bandwagon. Yeah, for sure. And I, and I want to say, I just want to put this out there. Uh, again, I, I kind of brushed on ROS in the beginning. And, and since I wrote the original croissant diet, my thinking about ROS has 
has evolved a bit um even in more you know when i when i first wrote the ros theory of obesity i was thinking about reactive oxygen species production purely from the perspective of insulin signaling so mm. after you've eaten ROS levels in your cells rise, and that actually shuts off insulin signaling. A lot of the molecules that are involved in insulin signaling stop working if there are too much react ROS around, if, if hydrogen peroxide levels build up is really what it is. Um, it, it shuts off insulin signaling, which is good because insulin is signaling energy to enter the cell. And if you've already got enough energy in the cell, you want to, you want to stop that from happening. Right. Mm. But more and more recently, what I've realized is that the production of the ROS actually is a thermogenic thing and it, and they're increasing your metabolic rate and they're, and they're doing the way that they're doing that is, Oh, that's brilliant, Brad. You know, it's a little, it's a little complicated, but, but, but here's what I've realized recently is that, and I said this in the beginning of the show, but so the pyruvate dehydrogenase, the, the, um, uh, the, the, the key enzyme really in glucose metabolism is also cranking out reactive oxygen species as it's running. And so when you think about, uh, so now when we talk about like, you know, sure, eating a croissant, right? It's mostly starch, which is glucose, and it's saturated fat from butter. And the starch and the saturated fat both produce reactive oxygen species as you're burning them in the mitochondria. And that's a way to, to increase the amount of oxygen that you're burning. And it's a way to, to get your mitochondria to burn more cleanly. Like I, I use the analogy of, a, of a, cars used to have, um, I'm spacing on the word now, not radiators, but... Uh, like the thing that uh, the mixed, catalytic converters, uh, the the part that mixes the fuel and the and the air before it goes into the pistons. Anyway, you're um, not talking to a mechanic. Let's put it away. Yeah. Anyways, it doesn't it doesn't matter what it's called. But the point is that if you get the fuel uh, mixture too rich, if you have too much fuel and not enough oxygen, it doesn't burn cleanly. And that's when you see like black smoke coming out of the tailpipe of a car. It's because it's not mixing enough oxygen with the fuel and the ROS. It, it really allows more oxygen to, to come into the fuel as it burns in the mitochondria and allows it, it allows the mitochondria to burn clean. And the thing is both the glucose and the saturated fat are doing that. They're producing the ROS and they're helping things to burn cleanly. But the, the polyunsaturated fats, they don't produce the ROS. And so they're not getting the same amount of oxygen mixing with the fuel as it burns and they start to burn dirty and they and that's when you start to see the buildup of the acetyl coa and the nadh and the mitochondria and that's when you start to see the reductive stress and and you start to do de novo lipogenesis you know you start to make fat instead of burning fat um and so that's where the the kind of ros theory has evolved over the last couple of years is now I think that they're even, you know, I, I now think they're even more important than I thought <laughs> when I first started and that they're wow. actually, they're actually, it's actually injecting more oxygen into the fuel mix and it's helping uh, the fuel to burn cleanly. And that's done through an enzyme called NNT. And I've got a bunch of articles on the blog talking about that if people want to research into that, that further. But yes, a reactive oxygen species absolutely increases uh, the amount of oxygen that you burn, uh, without a doubt.
And that Great is analogy you know, too. Great analogy. It really helps uh, one see what's going on. Carburetor. The carburetor is the, the thing that mixes the exactly. fuel in the air. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. It just really makes a lot of sense. Um, okay. Another question. Any reason to pulse the diet, like to go between PUFAs and, and, and other, other uh, modalities? Um, you know, I don't, I, I don't know if I would perfectly, uh, purposefully pulse in the PUFAs. Um, one thing I think is that the more that I've learned about um, kind of the dynamics of how the poof are stored and how long, like, you know, how, how we get rid of them, I've become a, a little more like, um, I'm less worried now if I like go to a restaurant once a week or once every couple of weeks and eat something that's maybe questionable, you know, right. That shouldn't have a lot of polyunsaturated fat in it, but maybe it does. And maybe you don't know, and there's no way to tell. Um, so I, I now think like if you're, you know, if you're avoiding the polyunsaturated fats six days a week, you know, 13 days out of 14. And one time you, you have a meal that, has more than you expected. I, I, I think it's probably okay. I, I think, you know, due to the fact that they are preferably, preferentially oxidized, I think the body is trying, is actually trying to get rid of them most of the time. It's just that, you know, when you eat the standard American diet and every day you're getting, you know, 10, 15, 20% of your calories from polyunsaturated fats, you know, they're going to, they're going to build up in your body tissues and then you're going to have real problems. But, you know, I've become a little less worried about like, yeah, the occasional meal that either you eat at someone's house or you eat at a restaurant, you eat out and, and maybe there's more in there than you expected. I, I, I don't sweat that as much as I once did, I guess. <laughs> That's good. That's really good for people to know. And I think, I think, um, you make a really good point that if you're not inundating your body with with PUFAs and the body is designed in some sense to burn these things off almost like a toxin, then you know it, it's going to be able to handle a little bit of an increase, just a blip of, of an increase, as opposed right. to this steady stream of of uh, I guess toxicity would be a word I would use. Yeah, and even I mean, toxicity to some extent, but. But mostly it's just it's just changing the mitochondrial dynamics. You know, that's the real issue right, with, right. with the polyunsaturated fats. Uh, it's just not, they're just not burning right. You know, it's like, right, right. Uh, it's like putting gas in a diesel engine or something. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, for me, I mean, my, my thinking about what constitutes a toxin is pretty broad because it's really anything that it harms or inhibits the body, right? So, right, sure. You could look at it broadly, but maybe not drastically in that way. So last, last major question here is, you know, here we've been eating this way for quite a while in this culture, right? And, you know, we're into multiple generations of this way of eating and it's just getting worse, obviously. And a lot of yeah. people, a lot of obesity, obesity problems. What do you think the prognosis is for people being able to kind of get out of torpor and stay out of torpor? Because I have a feeling like if you stuck a French person who had been eating ancestrally for a long time, in a in a in a different dietary environment, that they might not actually have weight problems in their lifetime, but maybe their children would. 
What do you? What I do you agree. Think? I, I, I agree with you. You know, I see it. I see it being something that is the first generation for whatever reason seems to deal with it okay it's usually the children of the first generation where you see the obesity and you can see that pretty quickly you know you see that in i mean we have newborns in america who are obese coming out of the womb you know um that's not because what the child was late didn't exercise enough in the womb you know um (laughs) no it's not and it's not because they were overeating you know there's a there's a there's a biological problem there right and and so um and and that is so yeah no but i think you're exactly right i think that that some of this is is a second generation and a third generation problem and you and, and you also see that it's it seems like it gets progressively worse through the generations um yeah and that's and it's it's concerning but i do have i do have i do have hope i have a lot of hope that we can figure out a way to to get out of this mess um i'm the eternal optimist so uh yeah and i've been and i've been i you know i keep experimenting all the time my latest thing i've been experimenting with um is is uh is is a couple of things called one is pyruvate and another one and i've been talking a lot about this i just did a video about it but i've been using a combination of pyruvate and l-carnitine and that comes from um well it it came out of a couple papers that i was really technical really hard papers and they were and they were doing some clever tricks with with l-carnitine and and pyruvate around mitochondrial stuff and i I said, you know, I started thinking about them together and I said, they really do go a long way. What, what L-carnitine does is it, um, it can actually pull acetyl-CoA out of the mitochondria and sort of like store it, uh, you know, uh, not permanently, but, but while it needs to in the, in the cytoplasm and what, Mm. what pyruvate does is it actually, um, cells who have too much NADH and and that's the problem we have too much when we're doing de novo lipogenesis we have too much acetyl-CoA and we have too much NADH and so uh pyruvate cells can actually um pyruvate is just a breakdown product of glucose and so um pyruvate but it's but it's missing a couple NADHs uh it's missing a few electrons that would normally be the high energy electrons that would give us NADH right so it's kind of like glucose light it's glucose, but it's had these NADH groups removed. And so, um, and so when you eat that, it's pretty easily absorbed. And, and we have pyruvate that circulates in our bloodstream all the time and cells will take in that pyruvate and they can reduce it to lactate. And when, and every time they make that reaction, they get rid of an NADH. And so the pyruvate can allow your cells to basically directly offload any extra NADH that they have. And the, and the carnitine, can pull acetyl CoA out of, um, out of the, yeah, out of the mitochondria, uh, and so those two things together, I was like, this seems pretty powerful, and I, and so I started, you know, searching for it on Google, and I found this study from 1999, where they had given a combination, they had given L-carnitine and and pyruvate, and they had these incredible weight loss results and it was a small study and they were like you know uh this is too small to like really draw conclusions with and it was only like three or four weeks 
but they'd had these like outstanding results <laughs> and it was wow. and it was that was cool because i was like okay in theory i think if you combine these two things it would be a really good idea and then i found this old study and of course pyruvate became very trendy in the late 90s and then somebody made a bunch of claims about it that weren't really true and i think they ended up you know get i don't know they got sued or they got in some kind of trouble for you know basically um overrepresenting pyruvate but i kind of think you know they threw the baby out with the bathwater because I, I do think it is really good you know on its own if you're eating a bunch of soybean oil and you're doing all the wrong things it's probably not gonna help you but if you you know if you get the soybean oil out and if you uh can add the pyruvate and the and the acetyl or in the l-carnitine together I, I i've only been doing it for a week or two but the results so far are great and I'm very, I'm very enthusiastic about this combination and potentially in combination. Them, Brad? What's up? How are you taking them? What? Are, you oh, yeah, yeah. So the, so the, the pyruvate is, is not very soluble. Like I was thinking I would just be able to like dissolve it and drink it and it's not very soluble. And so, but I found out that in, um, in, uh, in hot water, it's fine. So I, I heat up some hot water in the tea kettle and I usually use a couple, I just use a couple teaspoons of sugar and one of pyruvate. But, you know, if people want to use sugar, of course, they can use whatever kind of sweetener they want. It has kind of a funny, bitter flavor on its own. So it, it wants a little bit of sweetener, but um, I just pour hot water over it. And then I add ice until it's cold. And sometimes I put seltzer on it and it's almost like a weird little, the pyruvate has this kind of like caramel, bitter oh, flavor. So it's almost coffee? like, is that a pill or a capsule? Right. So I've been getting mine and I just, this is a shameless commercial plug, but I've been getting it from bulksupplements.com and I'm one of their, I'm in their affiliate network. So if people want to use yes, please. Uh, fire, fire, F I R E is a promo code. Uh, they get 12% off the pyruvate comes. It's just a powder. And I take, I would say upper limit. It, it's, it's um calcium pyruvate. I, I think with pyruvate itself, you could consume as much as you want. You probably don't want that much calcium. So I'd say upper limit that's a good idea is maybe 10 to 12 grams a day of pyruvate um which is you know in some of the studies people were doing 50 grams of of just pure pyruvate but it's not very stable unless you get the calcium pyruvate and so that's very convenient comes in a powder so you can um with the l-carnitine uh you can take it just with the pyruvate uh they also have a powdered version or um, and you can add that right to the right to the beverage. You only want uh, for a day about two grams of carnitine is about is about the max that's probably helpful. Okay. Um, and so I would say, yeah, if, if people do 12 grams a day of the pyruvate and two grams of the L-carnitine, it really is a um, uh, you'll give off a lot of heat. It, it really is. It's very thermogenic. So um, that's interesting. You, interesting. So. So when I take those two together, my body temperature always hits 98.6 within 20 minutes. Oh, that's um, fascinating. And if I do that and then I go eat a bowl of rice, sometimes my body temperature will be over 100. So do you actually sweat when you're eating after that? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm sweating right now because <laughs> I took some a while ago. Yeah, that's pretty good for upstate New York, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually kind of a cooler day. So I am. Yeah. So it's, it's amazing. Um, so that's, that's, that's my new, that's my new thing that I've been doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's been great. So I'm, I'm down a few pounds and 
I'm just I'm just sweating it out here. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you sound you sound great. You sound like you're 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 really approaching your fighting weight, and uh, you know I, I I so appreciate your time. I know this has been kind of a crazy afternoon for you, but I I, yeah. do, I, I do really want to thank you and honor you for this time that you spent with us. I feel like you've opened up my brain and poured a bunch of information in it, and I'm I'm kind of working through it, and I, I imagine other people might feel the same way. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I'm I'm happy to be on, and I hope people you know got some info out of this and hopefully maybe you know think about a few things differently as a result of this um, oh i know they will brad listen once again thank you so much i'll get this up in the next uh couple days and um just let me know if i can be of service my friend yeah excellent and and let me just plug a couple things uh my blog is fireinabottle.net um and people can follow along on uh twitter i'm fire underscore bottle and uh i've also am on instagram i've been starting to do some a lot more videos uh so ask you about instagram Good. i think i'm fire underscore in a bottle on instagram uh, there you go but i'm not totally uh, sure what my handle is but i think that's it yeah, let me just make a note of that that's good fire in a bottle. Yeah. 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 I mean, this is an education. You can just enter into uh, Brad's world and you know, starting with fireonabottle.net and just, you know, you'll read a long time and then make sure you read the comments and the discussions that happen afterwards, because I found those really illuminating as well. Yeah, there's a lot of smart people in the comments, so it's good. Right. I learned I learn a lot from the commenters. Oh, do you? Yeah, for sure. I love that. I love it when we can kind of give back and forth. Oh, and, and, and I should say there's also a great discussion about stearic acid and other things on the Reddit group, um, which is r slash saturated fat. r slash saturated fat. Wow. Yeah. Wow, you're just so techy. <laughs> well, I didn't start that. Somebody else started it. That's great. That's great. I love it. Yeah, well, you, people are really starting to kind of dig into this, as it were, you know, I guess pun intended, and... Um, because there's a lot, there's a lot of food for thought, ha 